God, as we gather as part of your family this morning, Lord, we confess to you that all week long, through our flesh and through the culture around us, we have heard one common sermon, and that is this, that we should trust in ourselves, that self-sufficiency and self-reliance is the way for everlasting life. So God, we need a new sermon this morning. We need a new word from you. God, we need to look up at you, Jesus, to see that in you is the fullness of life and everlasting joy. God, I pray this morning that you would or do an exposing work within our hearts. God, that you would show us what kind of barriers are keeping us from being desperate for you. And so God, use this passage, use this time for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, last week, uh, we kicked off a new sermon series that will be in for four more weeks that's centered on this idea of being desperate for God. Now, being desperate for something, when I think about that word, desperation, I think about someone who is willing just, about, just to do just about anything in order to get something. Think about a mother who has uh, her son at the grocery store, and she's shopping and looking for things to put in the grocery cart and looks around and can't see her son anywhere. And so this desperation starts to well up within her as she tries to search for her son. When I think of desperation, I think of the Indianapolis Colts and the offensive linemen who will be desperately trying to protect Andrew Luck this year. Desperation is about identifying a need that you cannot live without and channeling all of your energy, all of your efforts in order to attain it. It's living out of necessity and not obligation. It's seeing something and moving from that would be nice to have to I must have that. And as it relates to our relationship with God, it's understanding just how deeply we need God. And as a result, it's orchestrating our entire lives around pursuing all that God is for us every day of our lives. Last week, through looking at Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32, I challenged us with three things in order to maximize this sermon series. Then number one, I challenged us to pray and to prepare for Sundays, to view Sunday mornings as a place in which God can instill this desperate desire for him. It's not that God doesn't meet with us every single day throughout the week, but there is something unique that happens when the people of God gather together every single week. The second thing that I challenge us with is to take one thing this month and to fast it, to give it up, and in exchange to spend time with God. And then thirdly, I challenge us with just praying a very simple prayer every single day this month that went something like this. God, give me more of you and wrestle out of me anything that is standing in your way. Personally, I am really excited for the sermon series. I know I say that every sermon series that we launch, but there is something about this sermon series of being desperate for God that I personally really need. See, there are moments, and I'm sure you can relate with me on this, there are moments in my own life, probably more frequent than I care to admit, in which I don't crave God the way that I should. I don't know if you can relate to that, but maybe you look at other people who have like this passion for God and this hunger for God, like 24 seven just seems part of their DNA. And you think to yourselves, man, why, why can't I crave for God like that person? God, why don't I have a passion for you like, like this person over here? 
For me, I know that on Sunday mornings, I get filled up with God. When I spend time with God in my devotions, I, I have that passion for him, but my heart, like yours, tends to leak. It leaks this passion and this desperation for God, and so I need this sermon series. And my life tends to drift away from desperation, that the gravitational force of my self-sufficiency and my pride in combination with my idol of comfort, it wages war on having a desperate need for God. A desperation for me usually only comes because of a crisis. It comes usually out of a trial, and it's not always something every day that I experience. It usually goes like this in my life. Like, I know I need God. I know that I should have a desperate need for God, but my desperation awareness starts to wane because usually... I can solve my own problems. I can strategize my way out of issues. And frankly, I trust in myself all too often. Like maybe you can relate to that. Maybe your experience with God is something similar where it's not so much of a desperate need for God. Maybe it's more of an obligation. Maybe you don't feel your need for God even this morning. And so the, the purpose of this sermon series is to address the question of what do we do when we don't need God the way that we should, when we don't feel or sense that need. And so this morning, I'm gonna suggest to us that the first step that we do when we don't desperately need God the way that we should is to identify the barriers that might be in our hearts that are keeping us from hungering after God the way that we should. Identify the barriers that are keeping us from being desperate for him. And I think Luke 18 is going to help us uh, do that. Now, the context of Luke 18, before uh, we dive in here, shows us that Jesus is aiming to expose maybe the most common barrier that people have when they aren't desperate for him. And that barrier that we're going to look at this morning is, is self-sufficiency. That self-sufficiency is the tendency to rely on yourself in such a way that it suppresses your need for God. Now, I use the word suppress because we all need God. Like we're all dependent upon God. We're dependent on God for the air that we breathe. But there's something about self-sufficiency that creates this illusion in our minds that because we're so intelligent, because we're so skilled, because we're so experienced, we act as if we don't really need God. We act almost as if we are the source of all that is good in life. That's the illusion that self-sufficiency tends to create. And Jesus, in Luke 18, is trying to expose and trying to warn us of the danger of self-sufficiency. In fact, in our larger context, in verses nine through 30, Jesus uh, provides uh, different teachings. There are three different scenes here that get at the same point of exposing self-sufficiency. Verses nine through 14, our passage this morning, Jesus is gonna tell a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and he's gonna highlight the fact that the Pharisee is the one who struggles with self-sufficiency. In verses 15 through 17, we see the picture of childlike faith, that we are to receive Jesus just like children who are desperate and dependent and even helpless. And then the third scene in this larger context is verses 18 through 30, the, the famous story of the rich young ruler who epitomizes living a self-sufficient life and was unable to come to Jesus. 
So that's the larger context. And so verses nine through 14 is uh, what I'm calling a tale of two hearts. And what Jesus does here is he puts these two characters, a tax collector and a Pharisee, and puts them side by side, almost to compare them in a, in a sort of polarizing way. In verse nine, the text tells us that Jesus tells this story as a result of the crowd that's around him that the people around Jesus were people who trusted in themselves. They relied on themselves because of their own righteousness. Jesus is telling this story because the people that are around them are people who are self-sufficient and he's trying to warn them of that. And so we're gonna look at a tax collector and a Pharisee here this morning. Now these terms are not terms that we use every day. A tax collector, let me just uh, explain who these guys were in uh, the context of Jesus. Tax collectors were basically the scum of society. Now, whatever you uh, don't like about society, whether that be government bureaucrats or IRS agents or New England, New England Patriot fans, these guys represented that. Sorry, Dustin. Thanks for leading us in communion, by the way. That was excellent. But... <laughs> But these guys represented that in this culture. So when you think about a tax lawyer, don't just think about a glorified IRS agent. These guys were much worse than that. These guys were traitors to their own people. These guys were Jews who worked for the Romans. And look, sometimes we have a romantic view of Rome, largely because of movies like The Gladiator, but Rome was absolutely brutal to the Jewish people. Rome came in, and as they conquered the Jews, they brutally massacred thousands of them. They actually took thousands of Jews and crucified them on a cross up and down the main road as you went into Rome and as you left Rome. They did that just to kind of show them uh, their strength and who's really in control. And on top of that, Rome actually charged a tax on the Jewish people to protect them. Okay, now that's, this is where tax collectors come in. See, the Romans figured out that it's actually better for the Jews to collect money from their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters rather than the Romans. And so they hired these Jewish people to be tax collectors, and they didn't care how much they charged as long as Rome got their fair share. And so these tax collectors uh, collected more than what was necessary, and so they robbed their own people of money under the disguise of Rome's brutal power. These were hated people, that they were so hated that they weren't even allowed to give testimony in courts, okay? So that's the tax collector in this scene. Now, the Pharisee, on the other hand, the Pharisee, these were the good guys. These were the, uh, the individuals who were kind of the, the backbone of society. They were uh, faithful citizens. They were uh, people to kind of model your life around. These would be maybe an, an elder at a church or a seminary professor these are the individuals that uh, people would look at and say, you wanna be like those Pharisees over there. And so Jesus, in verse 10, tells this story about this tax collector and this Pharisee. Both individuals go to the temple and they go to pray. Now, I find it interesting that as Jesus is trying to teach on the dangers of self-sufficiency, he tells a story about prayer. There's something about praying, how we interact with God, how we relate to God, that reveals the heart's disposition towards God. 
There's something about interacting with God that really reveals your true understanding of your need for God. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, don't tell me how much you need me. Show me how much you need me by how you pray. Or to put it simply, the the things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. But the things that you don't pray about are the things that you trust in yourself to handle. That Jesus here is showing us what sort of people who are desperate for God, what are they like and what do they pray about? I love how Charles Hummel puts it about prayer. He says, the worst sin is prayerlessness. That we usually think of murder, adultery, or theft as among the worst, but the root of all sin is self-sufficiency, independence from God. When we fail to wait prayerfully for God's guidance and strength, we are saying with our actions, if not our lips, that we don't need God. How much of our service is characterized by going it alone? Now this story, we're gonna see not only the danger is not to pray, but the danger is even in how we pray. Now in order to understand the story, we need to understand Jesus. What Jesus is not saying in this story is that there's one person who's righteous and one person who's unrighteous. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that there are two individuals who are unrighteous and yet only one of them sees it. Only one of them realizes it. Both of them have a desperate need for God and only one guy understands that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk through both characters here and just kind of pull out different characteristics of what's really in their hearts. So let's first look at the Pharisee here in verses 11 and 12. We're gonna see here that the Pharisee demonstrates a self-sufficient heart, a self-sufficient heart. Three things that a self-sufficient heart produces that we can see in the Pharisee's prayer. Number one, this Pharisee demonstrates for us a spotlight on self, a spotlight on self. Notice how the Pharisee prays here. What is most striking about uh, his prayer is that he begins almost like a prayer of thanksgiving, and yet he never really gets to the object of his thanksgiving, who is God. He just focuses in on himself. In fact, even the way that he prays, what he prays about, he separates himself into a different camp from everybody else. He says, those are the sinners over there. Those are the adulterers. Those are the robbers. Those are the immoral people. I'm over here. I'm the clean one. We get this impression in how he prays that he feels like God should be honored that he's on God's team. In fact, he uses the the first person singular pronoun five times in two verses. He makes himself the subject of the prayer. Look, this is a, a warning to us. This is exactly what the illusion of self-sufficiency produces in our hearts. It blinds us from seeing our utter dependence and need for God. That we believe that we are the source of all that is good in life. That we believe we are what make things happen in our life, not God. That a spotlight, if you will, just shines brightly on our own achievements, our own performance as God kind of fades into the background. That self-sufficiency will always lead us to being obsessed with ourselves. 
when you see a picture of yourself, what, what do we tend to do? We tend to kind of focus in on ourselves. Even though there are a dozen people in that picture, we tend to just focus on ourselves and what we look at, what we look like, and how we're being perceived. That's kind of a microcosm of how a self-sufficient heart lives his or her life. Or to put it this way, if someone was writing a story about your life just based on the thoughts that go uh, in and through your mind all day long, who would be the main character of that story? Would it be you or would it be God? See, a self-sufficient heart goes through the day just consumed with self. How do I build a kingdom of self? How do I advance myself? How do I enhance myself? How do I protect myself? That a self-sufficient heart rarely thinks about God, rarely depends upon God, rarely turns to God. And this idea keeps us from seeing our desperate need for God. Secondly, the second thing that a self-sufficient heart produces is this tendency to be blind to your own sin, to be blind to your own sin. We see in this passage that there are ways that we can cover up the condition of our own hearts, that there are clever ways, even through religious and moral activity, where we can almost be blind to the true nature of our heart because we're so busy with religious and spiritual activity. This is exactly what this Pharisee is doing. He's praying, he tells us that he's, he fasts and he ties all the while being blind to his own sin. See, Jesus has already revealed, he's already called out the Pharisee's sin in Luke chapter 11. Now, Luke chapter 11, Jesus kind of calls out the Pharisees. Uh, he lists a number of things that they struggle with, but in verse 39, he says this, and the Lord Jesus said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. See, these Pharisees were so busy doing religious activity, that, that the religious activity was almost like this moral coding over the sin that was in their lives, and they couldn't see their need for grace. The sad irony with this Pharisee is that he was so busy calling out the sins of everybody else that he couldn't see his own need for grace. Nancy DeMoss, I think, provides a good summary of what took place in the heart of this Pharisee. She says this, she says that the higher up we find ourselves in terms of power, influence, and wealth, the more vulnerable we are to pride and self-deceit. So even though these Pharisees were high up in the social chain, they were blind to the sin that was in their hearts. Look, the danger of this is that self-sufficiency usually leads us to playing the spiritual comparison game where we kind of stack ourselves up against other people and we usually determine our desperate need for God by how, by how well we are spiritually performing compared to other people. And the danger of that is that we're always gonna find somebody who's not spiritually performing as well as we are. And so we're always pushing that desperation for God at arm's length. A good way to tell if this is true in your own life is just how often are you confessing your sin before God? How well are you uh, taking the sin that's in your heart and, and bringing it before the Lord? How often do you feel remorse over your sin? But self-sufficiency leads us to being blind to our own sin. 
The third thing I want to point out, the last thing about this Pharisee, self-sufficiency produces misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Through the Pharisee's prayer, we learn three different behaviors that he, um, that he performs in his own life. These are admirable traits. He prays, he tithes, he fasts. In fact, this Pharisee was an overachiever. He was spiritually zealous. He was fasting uh, twice the amount of what was, what was prescribed for, for Pharisees to fast. And he fasts twice a week. He doesn't just tithe on the things that he produces, but he tithes on everything that he owns. And yet, this Pharisee was pursuing good things and yet was missing the ultimate thing. Jesus has already called out his misplaced priorities. Again, in Luke chapter 11, this time in verse 42, Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and yet you neglect justice and love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, self-sufficiency allows good things to crowd out the essentials. This Pharisee was so busy doing and performing for God that he neglected cultivating a dependency and a love for God. This reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 10 of Mary and Martha when they were with Jesus, having a meal with Jesus. You have Martha who was kind of a type A personality. She was preparing the meal, she was serving, she was cleaning. And she was getting a little bit frustrated with Mary because Mary was just at the feet of Jesus. She was basking in the beauty and the greatness of Christ. And Jesus kind of picks up on this and kind of calls Martha out. He says, Martha, you are busy, you are distracted, you are anxious with so many things. And yet Mary has chosen the good portion and this will not be taken from her. He's referring to the, the intimacy that she cultivated by sitting at the feet of Jesus, just worshiping and enjoying Jesus. Look, our great enemy in cultivating a desperation for God is being consumed with good things that we miss out on the essential thing, which is cultivating a love and an intimacy with God. And we get caught up in, in the busyness of life, even good things. We get caught up in, in our families and our work and even church that we miss the essential thing of connecting our souls with God. This illusion of self-sufficiency usually results in our souls kind of feeling fragmented. Our souls have a tendency to feel like it's a, it's a mile long but an inch deep. That this illusion of self-sufficiency kind of leads us to being trapped in this vicious cycle where we believe that, that we should rely on ourselves. And yet in order to appease that, we have to perform more and to do good things. That we believe the lie that we are what we produce. We are what we do. We are what we perform. And this is the trap that this Pharisee found himself in as a result of a self-sufficient heart. And this is the warning that Jesus gives. Now, secondly, there's another character in our story that I wanna highlight for us, and that is the tax collector who exhibits a needy heart. And so again, Jesus is intentionally juxtaposing this uh, Pharisee, this self-sufficient heart with the tax collector who demonstrates this need for God. 
If you notice, the tax collector here, like the Pharisees, stands far off from others, but this time he does so for completely different reasons. At this tax collector, his motive for standing far off from other people is because he felt unworthy. He had a humility about himself. He was needy for grace. He even averts his eyes. He beats his breast, which were all signs demonstrating his own contrition and his own humility. And his prayer is so different than that of the Pharisee. He is fully aware of his sin before the holiness of God. This individual prays because he needs to pray, not out of a ritual and not out of obligation. His prayer, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That there's no self-congratulation, there's no summary of his good deeds, there's no sense that God ought to feel honored that he's on his team. There's only one thing that stands out in his prayer, and it's his neediness. He is in desperate need of mercy from God. In fact, his, requ his request for mercy, he uses this Greek word meaning to cover. That this tax collector acknowledges something that we all need, that he needs someone beyond himself to cover his sin. He needs a forgiveness, he needs a righteousness that he could not earn, that he could not come up on his own, and he appeals to God's compassion for this forgiveness. And in verse 14, as this scene comes to a close, Jesus states that it's the tax collector who went home justified before God, not the Pharisee. Look, this is a story of a great reversal. The one that we thought would be self-sufficient isn't. And the one that we thought would have a desperate need for God isn't. You have to wonder, how did, how did this take place? Well, Jesus gives us a clue at the end of verse 14. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We're gonna look at this idea of humility all of next week, but this idea of cultivating a humility within our hearts is the way that we avoid the trap of self-sufficiency. Love how Charles Spurgeon talks about self-sufficiency and our need for God. He says this, he says, self-sufficiency is Satan's net wherein he catches men like poor silly fish and does destroy them, but not self-sufficient. Think yourselves nothing, for you are nothing and live by God's help. The way to grow strong in Christ is to become weak in yourself, that God pours no power into man's heart till man's power is all poured out. Live then daily a life of dependence on the grace of God. Do not set yourself up as if you want an independent gentleman. Do not start in your own concerns as if you could do all things yourself, but live always trusting in God that you have as much need to trust him now as you ever have. For mark this, although you would have been damned without Christ, at first you will be damned without Christ now, unless he still keeps you. Look, this tax collector understood his need for God because he emptied himself out of all self-sufficiency. Now, how did he do that? How do we see so many individuals throughout scripture, so many people in this room who move from living a self-sufficient life to living a life out of desperate need for God? 
Like I think of the, the calling of the early disciples in Matthew chapter four, where Jesus comes to them as they're fishing with all of their fishing gear, all of their, their livelihood there, and he says, come and follow me. And they, out of desperation, they leave everything in order to follow Jesus. I think of Peter in Matthew chapter 14 as he's trying to walk on water to get to Jesus and he starts to sink into the water and he cries out out of desperation for Jesus to save him. I think of Mark 7 of the woman who out of desperation cries out to Jesus to deliver her daughter from being demon possessed. I think of, I'm looking at specific faces and stories and I'm, I'm seeing these stories this morning of people who move from self-sufficiency to living in desperate need for God and the thing that we all have in common is Jesus. That Jesus is the only one who could melt a heart filled with self-sufficiency and pride and show us our greatest need for him. That it's Jesus, it's Jesus who comes to us and saves us, not in our self-sufficiency, but in our need and in our lack. Look, Jesus is the only cure for our self-sufficiency. He is the only one that can break through those barriers that are in our lives because Jesus is the only one that our hearts truly crave. Look, our, our hearts, they, they don't crave building a kingdom for ourselves. They don't crave self-reliance. They don't crave performing for God in order to earn his love. Our hearts crave the one who whispers to our souls, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. Come to me, all who are filled with, with self-sufficiency and pride. Come to me, spouses who are trying to fix their marriages on their own. Come to me, parents who are trying to, to parent out of your own strength. Come to me, all who are trying to find their worth and their performance. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. That Jesus offers true and lasting rest because he did all the work for us. He did all the work on the cross. He paid for our sins. He broke the chains of sin that are in our lives, and that is something that we cannot do on our own. But the way to break the sin of self-sufficiency in our lives is to look to Jesus, to look to the cross. Because look, at the end of the day, self-sufficiency is a belief problem, isn't it? Self-sufficiency is believing that I'm so intelligent, I'm so skilled, I'm so experienced, I can get through life on my own instead of trusting in Jesus. And yet the beauty of Jesus is that he comes to us and he exposes us that in us. And he says, come to me and find true and lasting rest in him. Have you had that moment in your life where you've come to the end of yourself? Have you had those moments all throughout the day where you put to death self-reliance and self-sufficiency and you trust in Jesus again and again, that you pray prayers just like this tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like I would guess that most of us tend to relate more with the Pharisee in this story than the tax collector. And so the call this morning is to identify what is the barrier that is in your life that is keeping you from being desperate and being needy before God. 
This morning, we wanna give you a chance to, to take that step to identify your barrier. And so we've got these little note cards and, and markers down here on the front and even in the back there. And I'm gonna ask you in just a couple of minutes during the last song, that if the Lord is revealing a barrier in your life, maybe it's self-sufficiency, maybe it's something else, that you would take one step this morning and that you would take a card and that you would write whatever that barrier is in your heart and that you would just drop it in the basket this morning. Our, our staff, our elders, we would love to pray through these cards over the next week. We would love for God to, to break strongholds in our congregation so that we would be a people who cry out to God out of desperation, not out of obligation. And so we're gonna do that just in a moment, but before that, I just wanna help us maybe um, take a, a step deeper this morning and look at three questions that can help discern what kind of barriers are in our lives. The, the challenge this morning is not to just look at symptoms, but to look at the root that's in your heart that's producing self-sufficiency. Okay, so here are three questions to discern what kind of barriers are in your life. Number one, do you try to be everywhere, fix everything, and have all the answers? Look, if, that, if that's true in your life, look, I know that's true in my own life, like self-sufficiency might be a barrier that's keeping you from seeing your desperation for God. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I, I feel this burden to want to fix everything, want to be all things to all people, and that burden within me sometimes chokes out having a dependency upon God. That pride tells us that if we plan well enough, if we organize, if we strategize well enough, that we can achieve anything. And yet, I'm just reminded that we are not called to repent for, being, uh, for not being everywhere for everybody fixing everything, but we are called to repent for trying to do those things. And so if that's you, then self-sufficiency might be a barrier. Number two here, second question is, do you consistently choose good things over the essential? If that's true, then you might have a barrier of misplaced priorities. As I mentioned earlier, busyness and distractions and having a full schedule can mask our desperate need for God. That misplaced priorities can distract us from the true condition of our hearts that we can run around doing good and responsible things yet neglect the ultimate and the essential thing which is, which is intimacy with God. And if you know this, it's sometimes good to, remind, to be reminded of this, but the enemy spends 168 hours a week trying to destroy your relationship with God. And it's so often we feel like just a few minutes with him will suffice and protect us from his attacks. Look, our priorities reveal our desires and often we give God leftovers. Third question here, and there are many more, but we'll stop at number three here. Have you stopped taking risks for God? One way that you can tell that your desperation for God has dwindled is by looking at your own life to see if, if safety and comfort are ruling in your hearts. If you've stopped sharing Jesus with other people, if you've uh, stopped loving difficult people in your life, if you've stopped uh, being generous with your finances, like no longer feeling stretched spiritually and growing is a sign that maybe you're valuing comfort over being desperate for God. Look, there are many other barriers that could be in our hearts this morning. I trust God that he'll reveal that to you this morning, but today we just want you to take a step 
to just identify what the barrier might be in your hearts, to confess it, and to ask God to work in your life. And so we'll do that over this next song. Let's pray together and respond appropriately to him. God, we thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us to ourselves. God, we thank you for the spirit who works in our hearts, who takes the word of God and makes them come alive within our own souls. And God, we need you even in this moment to continue to reveal sin that might be residing in our hearts. God, we don't wanna be blind to our sin. God, we don't wanna be caught up in having misplaced priorities. God, we want to be a church and a people who are desperately longing for you. And so God, would you work to, Lord, reveal what it is in our heart that's keeping you from being on the throne. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.